Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gieschen. I write the Necker Substack and I'm very excited to share another conversation with my friend Alix Pesquet. This is the follow-up to his talk on learning for specifically for investors. And in this follow-up, we're going to jump into both a few topics that are related to learning. Um, we're going to talk about regime change, personality types, tension and, and learning and kind of what, what gets in the way of it. But first, we're going to start off with one big topic where Alix is kind of my go-to expert and, and definitely a mentor, uh, which is everything around networking, which to me as an introvert, I didn't get it for a long time. I was like, okay, this, this sounds kind of, this is kind of salesy and, and weird and I don't want to approach strangers and give them my business card and I never really got the hang of it. Um, didn't grow up in a in a very sociable kind of culture where where just where I kind of picked it up um, and had to learn it the hard way slash actually the easy way because the way Alix does it is very organic, very just creating connections between people, building a network around ideas and shared interests, and constantly introducing people or hosting something um, and uh, making sure that everybody um, kind of grows in, in the presence. And so to me, I've, I've learned a lot from him and I know it's, it's a, it's a subject he studied deeply. So that's where we're going to kick it off. Anyways, I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation and, uh, yeah, let me know on the Substack. I'll uh, link a transcript as well and, uh, let's go. Thank Alex. Thank you so much for joining me again. I'm, uh, I'm super excited to dig back into, uh, everything I can from you. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And by the way, I'm very grateful. I was surprised, uh, a, how well our first, uh, video went, but I'm very impressed with your audience. Uh, the people that have been reaching out have a certain caliber, uh, to them. So I think what you're doing is really amazing because you've attracted an audience that is really, really smart. Um, you know, I think the stuff that we put out was, was good, but the feedback that I've gotten has actually been even better than the stuff that we put out. Um, yeah. And one thing that surprises me of that, by the way, is that, uh, some of my investment heroes that I don't know reached out to me, uh, after watch, uh, your interview. So I, I think your audience has a, has a reach that, uh, is actually excellent. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. I, I think it's one of the most rewarding parts of, of doing this, right? Putting anything out that you get this resonance and, and you get in touch with people and you have this shared language, right? They get back to you on ideas that you put out and it creates a very quick way of connecting and, and having a, an interesting conversation. So I'm glad that happened too. Right. I know, I know you're still um, a little bit new to the, to the Twitter game, but it's, it's that it's, it's incredible, I guess, a uh, community. Um, so I'm glad to see you be, yeah. It really is. Um, you know, I would, I would pay a lot of money to use Twitter on a monthly basis. And guess what? We actually get it, uh, for free. Uh, by the way, what's amazing also is, uh, one of the most common feed piece of feedback that we get from the video that you and I did was, I can't believe this content was free. Um, and I think it shows the value of adding value, uh, and just 
putting out stuff that's really going to be helpful to 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 younger and in many cases uh, older analysts and PMs too. Yeah, I, and I always love what you say. Like you want to have younger, uh, you want to have mentors. That mentors can be both older and wiser, but also younger and more energetic or curious or sort of more in touch with things. Which brings me actually to the topic where I want to start, which is this. Um, we touched on it, or you touched on it last time, but this whole area of networking and mm. connecting with people, building a network, and it it feels important to me. Is one of the most popular pieces that I've done was on on Buffett and this idea that yes, he reads a lot, but people take it to this extreme and they um, they come up with this misconception that oh, all it takes is reading and ingesting information, and right. uh, and I think you're personal experience as well as what you study, you spend a lot of time on networks and, and how to go about that. So, so maybe frame that a little bit and um, explain to me a little bit like, okay, how do you, how do you think about networks? We touched on it briefly last time, but um, cause you, you talked about, for example, offensive and defensive qualities. Like there's a lot of stuff where I think you go very deep, just like, okay, let's frame for me how you think about that, that whole area. Um, sure. First, I want to say thank you to, I forgot to mention that I want to thank the people that gave us uh, shout outs on their Twitter for interviewing. Uh, because again, you know, the talk about networking, you know, my friends are my wealth. Um, and, you know, I'm always moved when I think about, you know, how my friends have helped me and if you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, I'm one of the most fortunate men in the world. You know, so some of the guys that, that shared our interview, uh, guys like Herb Greenberg, uh, Michael Mobison, uh, Dan McMurtry, Tom Morgan, Josh Wolf, uh, Eric Markowitz, uh, Chris Abdelsemi, I'm, I'm sorry, Chris Abdelmessi, uh, Michael Billings, and uh, Anthony Cambero. Uh, Anthony, for example, is very early on was a person that really helped shape who I became as an investor. Uh, a lot of the learnings that we did together very early on were were really incredible and shaped me all the way to today. So say thank you to those guys. And uh, uh, again, you guys are my wealth. So networks. You know, the way to think about a network is it's at the same time a moat and it's also a margin of safety, you know, to use uh, uh, value principles. Mm -hmm. And how is it a moat? Well, if you think about threats and opportunities, you know, a network throws opportunities at you. So it's a moat, it's a competitive advantage that enables you to accomplish your investment goals. How is it a margin of safety? Well, it warns you of threats. You know, you could be, you know, driving down the road. There's a cliff over there. You may not see it, but somebody from the side is like, hey, did you see there's a cliff down there? And you take a look, it's like, oh, there's a cliff. So I have to sit down. So, you know, networks also give you private information and access to resources. And it gives you the ability to influence others over the course of events even. And it always it also lowers your costs of doing your process. And it also extends your reach, right? 
Um, and it takes work, uh, proper networking in the long game. And, you know, you may not see the benefits of it for a long, a long while while you're building it. But again, I think there's a slide in, uh, in the presentation that we did where it shows a distributed network, a centralized network, decentralized network. And you have to go out and build what I think is a decentralized network. And the way you do that is the things that I mentioned, uh, uh, network components, these triads, hubs, connectors, filter aggregators, and, and masterminds uh, that you can create. And then really having the philosophy that once you create them, let them go. And eventually something comes back to you and doing that. And I think some of the things that we should discuss, like if we're going to discuss networking, have to do with three things. One is the important triad creation. Mm-hmm. Triad creation, by the way, I use a sociological term. It really means putting people together, right? Exactly. Being in the middle there, right? The second thing is if you're going to deal with networking, especially for younger analysts and older, is... Uh, John Whitehead, the CEO of Goldman, um, he had a great saying. He says, important people like to deal with other important people. Are you one? And then this concept of how do you raise your importance when you're younger? And also, how do you approach an important person? That's really important. And then the third thing is, how do you use networking tactics and strategies for field research to do what you do you know and it's also important to to understand that again analytical work is not just reading things and analyzing one of the things that reason i love your piece on buffett is you showed how buffett went out there and built a network you know there's a perception that this guy stays in a room you know and reads 10ks all day long and i think that's very uh, that's a flawed perception, you know, not only because in the early days, that's not what he did, but today he's built the attractor that people call him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then you have the inbound phone call. So we can talk about the, these things when it comes to networking, uh, because I, I think that, that if you're going to cover networking, you have to cover these three things. Yeah. Let's, let's tackle them one by one. And I mean, I learned the triad. Uh, concept from you and I implemented and, and I guess maybe outline how that works and then maybe also touch on it why do you as you said it takes work to build these networks and so yeah. at least for me some of this is not intuitive if I read a networking book I'm usually okay somebody who's very extroverted and loves to go out and talk to people wrote mm-hmm. this and they're like you know constantly be among people and do this I'm like it, it, for me it's an active process I have to remind myself oh it would be a good idea right. to do this so how do I um, right. Maybe explain the concept and then how do you make it intuitive for people where it's not, it's not what they naturally do. Sure. By the way, the best networkers I know are actually introverts. They're, they're not actually like me. I'm an extrovert. So, you know, being with people is my happy place. Right. You know, uh, being in the corner meditating, you know, no, that, that's actually uncomfortable. <laughs> By the way, I always laugh when these introverts tell me, oh my God, meditating is so amazing. I'm like, dude, that's your fucking happy place. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, so, so you gotta be, you know, it's like meditating 
that. Yeah. An extrovert meditating and doing it is actually way more valuable than an introvert doing. Um, you know, so, so uh, what a triad is very simple is you take two people on your network that don't know each other, but that have something in common where they're trying to accomplish something, either a goal or, or a task, or they might really get along. And what you do is you introduce them together. You write an email and you say, uh, John, meet Michael. I thought you guys would want to meet because of X, Y, and Z. Look forward to hearing how it goes and having that connect. And then more importantly, letting them be. Right? Sociologists that have done studies of networks find that the most successful people have six stable triads in their networks. And again, if you're looking for the, the work to back this up, uh, there's a bunch, but I refer you first to David Logan's book, Tribal Leadership, chapter 10 on triads, where he discusses it. And here's what stops people from creating triads, okay? We all have post-traumatic stress from one thing. When we were younger, we introduced one friend to another and they took off and it left us behind and had all this fun without us. Fun. Yes. Right? So now we started hogging our networks. Like, no, no, no. I don't want to introduce this person. Mm. That's a scarcity mindset. You need to have an abundance mindset. Uh, we also have a fear of getting ripped off, you know, of someone taking advantage of us. Uh, and you kind of have to get over that. You know, you, you have to get used to the fact that people are going to be successful without you. And, and uh, actually, in, in, in Judaism, I'm not Jewish, but I've studied a lot of religions. And I love this concept of mitzvahs. Right, which is a blessing, usually done when you introduce a man and a woman to each other. Talk about a triad, and 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 it's a blessing because of what it adds to the community. And uh, I think a lot about introducing people to each other about business mitzvahs, right? So, you know, triads are how you get network effects in your life, mm -hmm. right? It's also how you start social processes uh, from happening. Uh, one, but by the way, most powerful business partnership in the world is probably Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. And we tend to focus on these two guys, but we never asked, wait a second, who introduced Charlie to Warren? I think right? it was one of Buffett's investors, right? And he said dinner when Mon Munger was in town. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And he Sorry said to jump that. in, but I was like, oh, I, yeah, I remember. You, you remind me of Charlie Munger and Warren was like, who's that? Can you imagine how that partnership put together? Yes. I thought um, about that. So, you know, triads are also a leadership tool. You know, one of the best military generals I've ever met. Um, when he's trying to solve something, one of the things that he'll do is he'll take one division leader and say, okay, let me introduce you to a second guy. And then he tells them, this is the objective I want you guys to accomplish. And then you guys manage each other 
to accomplish that objective. And then weeks later, sometimes he's even forgotten that he did that. They come back to him with a solution. Yeah. Right. So it lowers your cost of management. It's a little bit like planting seeds, right? You're introducing these people, you're planting the seed, and then you kind of walk away and sometimes something will come back and you may not even be aware of that process anymore. And they may go on. And in some cases, people will remember, right? They'll, oh, Alix introduced us. So that's right. That's right. I was once introduced to a CEO by a third person. Uh, This was over 12 years ago. And the CEO and I ended up investing in his company. I went on his board. Five years after, we were looking for another board member. And who did we think about? Well, the person that introduced us. Yeah. Right. And five years later, this guy gets a call and I say, hey, we want a board member. And he said, well, I don't really have time to get on board. I was like, well, I haven't told you about the comp package yet that you're going to get. And he said, I do have the time. And had he not created that triad, he never had access to that opportunity. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking about, I like it. I'm, I'm obviously I'm trying to implement it as well, but you mentioned the second point was sort of this, this question of importance, right? And sort of, if your network isn't that big yet, and I sometimes struggle with that. I was like, oh, I, you know, I like this person that I just met. I would mm. love to have more people to introduce them to, but you sort of run into this wall of like, well, there's no flywheel yet. Like if the network right. is a little bit skinny, how do you get this? How do you get this going? And how do you get your way to people that are, you know, quote unquote, worth introducing to, right? How do you uh, cold start them? Look, the, there's a few ways. Uh, but first, you got to go back to this concept of important people like to deal with other poor people. And as a younger person, how do you raise your importance? Right. And First, you have to think about that the young guy, he's got all these barriers in his mind as to why an important person doesn't want to talk to him. So you kind of have to get over these barriers first. Uh, one of the barriers is um, uh, I have nothing to offer this important person. Right. The second barrier is uh, who am I to contact this person? I've done nothing yet in my life, blah, blah, blah. Get over that. Okay. You have to think a li- much more highly of yourself. But also remember, there is nothing that an important, wealthy, well-connected person is usually unhappy, wants more than a good student that wants his guidance. That is going to do what he says to do. And that's going to give him feedback when it works and when it doesn't. A lot of older uh, people, and by the way, I, I really recommend you read the book of Arthur Brooks on this, uh, From Strength to Strength, Life After Your 50s. And he recommends uh, teaching and mentoring as that gives people that are highly successful a lot of joy and motivation Mm. and it's this thing about being a good mentor but when you get that old having mentors that are younger yeah yeah. because they give you energy and they remind you how to be young again and they they remind you of the naive question which you've forgotten how to ask 
right? So how do you raise your importance? Your importance. Uh, first, you gotta, you have to be on the same mission as the guys that you accomplish that that you're trying to build relationships with. And if they're into business and you're not into business, you're probably gonna have a hard time unless you're into art and they're into art or something like that. Um, if you're into learning, you're approaching a non-learner, you're not really gonna be. You're not going to be in the same mission. I personally, I'm into self-development, exercise, nutrition, and recovery, because I know what a competitive advantage that is. And when I usually meet somebody that's way ahead of me and we have that in common, it's an instant relationship. Right. So the, the, the primary way that I would do it for a younger person, you have to leverage the institutions that they belong to. So for example, the alumni list of your school, you know, are you able to contact these people and build relationships with them? Right. The country clubs, the philanthropies, the charities, some people join these things just for the networking aspects to be able to network with important people. Mm-hmm. But one way of doing it as well that I think works very well is writing great content and using content as leverage. One way that I've done it, and I know plenty of other people that have done it uh, as well, is they read a book. They immediately contact the writer after that. Right? And build relationships with the writer. And I suggest you use... A Professor Rao's technique uh, when you contact a writer saying, this is what I admire about the book I just read. This is what I can do for you. And this is what you can do for me. And always make what you can do for them be bigger than what they can do for you. Right? So if you're a younger person, one thing that you can do for them is saying, hey, I'm going to organize a Zoom with all my friends for you to come in and talk about the, what you're working on today. If you're a student, you say to them, hey, come to, to my school. I'm gonna have an auditorium filled with people just to listen to what you say. You know, the writers, uh, they love attention just like we all do. They're not gonna say no to that. But now writers are actually very important contacts, right? Think about the influence and the power that a writer can have. So. Once you have these writers in your network, when you first meet somebody, that's going to be one of the first people you're interested in. If there's a fit, if there's a triad, yeah. right? Uh, teaching and having access to talent. Right? That's uh, some of the younger people that I know that, that are saying, hey, I'm going to learn this topic, teach it to others. And now when they meet somebody that's looking for talent, they have access to that talent. That's one way of raising your importance. Huh. Sorry, you have a question? Yeah, no, I, I, I like that one. I didn't really think, and, and I know you do teaching. It is, I didn't think about it. the idea of doing that. Yes, gives you access to, I guess, a pool of talent that you can then connect and share. So it's a, it's a well of, of possible triads. You bet. You bet. And teaching, by the way, is... I don't like things that are altruistic. I don't like things that are self-serving. I like things that are both altruistic and self-serving. 
And teaching is, is both. I love seeing young people do well with what I've taught them. But I also love five years later when they call me with their best ideas, right? So, yeah, yeah. so it, it, it's, that's amazing. And that's, again, you planted the seed in them and then it's five years later that it becomes an oak. How do you approach an important person? Okay. One thing you have to understand is that if an important person is really good, they're going to be busy. So the most important tactic is going to be persistence. You're going to have to email him, call him many, many times to be able to get in front of him. And, and also very important people usually got to where they got because of persistence. So it's the only thing they truly respect and somebody else is somebody else that's also done that. And by the way, one of the patterns of success is constant persistence in the face of constant rejection until you breach through that barrier to entry. So persistence is key. And I always say to, to some of my young friends, when do you stop actually contacting the guy? And, and they never really know what the answer. And I say, Hey, it's when they put a restraining order on. Okay. So like when they say, Hey, stop actually calling me legally, you're not allowed to be within a thousand yards of them. That's when you stop. Until then you keep continuing until the person has expressly said, Hey, do not contact me again. Keep calling. Of course, it's better if you have a social connection through your, a school through a connector, through a social venue. If you have a common affinity, you know, the, I know a friend of mine that became highly connected because of kite surfing in the tech and venture world. He was a kite surfer. The other guys were kite surfers and most of the deals and investments that he gave came from that, right? So you write uh, the person approach, you get in front of them, you get given this, this time period. You need to come prepared that you've actually researched this person's life and that you have questions. So literally bring a notepad and questions. But you also want to focus on a certain type of question. You need to figure out how to get him to speak about his fears and frustrations, the problems he's trying to solve for, and his wants and aspirations. What's he working on that he's trying to accomplish? three to five years from now. And you keep asking questions across the categories of what he's trying to accomplish. Once you have that, you're probably not going to have a solution because you don't have the experience or the contacts. Use that as a project. Go and try to solve for those fears and frustrations and wants and aspirations. While still keeping things confidential, Call your other mentors. Say, hey, hypothetical, somebody's trying to accomplish this. And you got to keep things discreet, by the way, but use hypotheticals. How would you go about doing that? Write those things down. Put in a document. Send it back to the guy. That's another way of raising your importance. This important person that you meet, you have another important person in your network. 
introduce them. Important people like to deal with other important people. Take them out to lunch. If you don't, have, if you have the money, pay for lunch. Don't let them pay for lunch. Right? That's one way of of making sure that now you're in the mix and you raise your level of importance. And then the cold approaches. The number of time in New York City that I see somebody that I want to meet walk down. You have to be ready to make a cold approach. One of my favorite writers, I cold approached him like that. And now we have a very strong relationship. I get his books. I help him edit his books now, which is incredible to actually watch him work on something. It's, a, it's fascinating. You know, so, so those are the ways that you approach an important person um, while still making sure that you do things that raise your influence as well. Yeah, I've watched you do that on the on the street. I was like, oh shit, that's that's ballsy, but that's but that's great. That's very <laughs> courageous. No, I I like that. I I was like, look, you you need courage. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. You need courage. You know these these things these tactics apply as much to your personal life as they do to your to your to your business life. You know when when being when I was younger, for example, and single in the city. You know, just to be a good guy, I would take girls that I, would, that I would meet and I would introduce them to each other. And then I started noticing that I was getting set up more on dates by those girls with other girls that they knew, which was a direct result of the triads that I was creating. Right? So it, so it was a, a happy ac accident. And my friends were like, where are you getting all this deal flow from? <laughs> right? And, and, you know, and again, that it, it's just a tactic. And my cousin, um, who's single, you know, she was having a hard time meeting people and she started just hosting and bringing people together. And that's as a result of that, that she met her husband, you know? So, so these tactics hurt, uh, help, uh, personally as much as they do in your, in your business life. I love it. I wanted to ask you, cause you mentioned, um, the institutions. And, and you mentioned country clubs. I'm just reading the um, the Isaacson biography of Leonardo da Vinci. And so he touches on certain places become hubs, right? Like it was Florence during the mm -hmm. Renaissance. Um, there's all kinds of examples. and and But usually there's a few places where a lot of interesting people in a certain domain mix and mingle. And then I'm like contrasting that with, for example, Buffett removed himself from New York, right? And there were different reasons like overhead, being having supportive friends and family. So I'm curious how you think about the importance of being or having access to, I don't want to say the right place, but certain places, certain hubs. How do you think about the importance of place and, and has the digital realm kind of replaced that or how, how does that work? It's extremely important. You know, if you, if you want to be in the hedge fund business, for example, being in New York, London is going to be very important, you know, because the people you run into, uh, it's going to be vital. You can, and also I love the digital, I love Twitter, but a lot can be lost in the digital interactions, right? So, and by the way, once you have real world relationships, so, so we have a lot of relationships with people that are anonymous on Twitter. I know who they are in real life, but on Twitter, they're anonymous. And when they, 
publish something, it's a real advantage to actually understand who that person actually is. It can illuminate context very rapidly. So it matters a lot. If you don't have that, I think Twitter is an amazing substitute and also the internet. Um, but, you know, even with the big guy, um, Buffett, he didn't just stay in Omaha. He was constantly traveling. Right. You know, the guy was visiting companies on his honeymoon, for God's sakes. <laughs> yes, it's a great one. He's like constantly. Always, I love always, like, always on, always curious. It's uh, so true. He left his wife in the car. <laughs> uh, so, you know, yes, it's important to be in the right places. And if you can't travel, uh, have the internet as a substitute, but the second that you can, you know, but by the way, even in your room too, you will have access to people that are in business, you know, and, 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 and using these networking tactics on these people, it's actually uh, very valuable. You know, the people like to talk about, you know, uh, uh, the um, medium-sized fish in a big pond. It's great to be a big fish in a small pond too, mm. you know, and develop a sort of home court advantage that you can have in certain uh, cities. Which, by the way, it's actually very valuable because, you know, I grew up in Paris as soon as I had the sort of like a New York or Miami network, when these people traveled to Paris, I had a book for Benage in Paris, right? And I could show them the town, introduce them to people and so on. So, you know, start with where you are and what you have for sure. Got it. Where do you think people go wrong? Um, meaning... Are there certain ideas or practices that are there traps to fall into? You know, like the idea of like, oh, running around a conference and giving everybody your business card. Like, what do you see where people try to build a strong network, but they're either doing it not efficiently or just not effectively and, and they're kind of getting in the way? One, not creating triads. Constantly doing this one-on-one -on -one networking, which by the way, very valuable especially if you fall for the right uh, uh, mentors, but not taking people and fusing them. You know, it, it's kind of like that saying, you know, the best time to have planted a tree was 30 years ago. The second best time is today, Yeah. right? You need time to let these triads take the, the network effects. Um, the second that I would say, you know, and this is very important for research. You, you, I have to mention this as a sort of a disclaimer. When you use these networking tactics as an analyst or a peer, you're much more prone to falling for MNPI. You're much more prone to actually getting material on public information. Yeah. So you have to be extremely careful, right? And the second that you, you think you've got something that's hot, you got to call the lawyer or go to compliance and also make sure that you mention to your compliance people and not your PM so that you don't co compromise your PM. Mm -hmm. You don't restrict him. Very important. Um, and then you document everything because, it, you know, like for example, it happens sometimes that we're locked in on stuff because I'll be on the phone with somebody like, shit, did I just get an API? Mm -hmm. And you just have to make sure it's very, very important. And that's actually a flaw 
of, uh, of the approach, but that can be mitigated if you are, uh, uh, careful. The second one, and this is going to be for the younger people is this problem of upgrading your mentors. Right. Did, did I, I can't recall if I, I, spoke I think, I think you touched on it last time in right. the sense that you go from, I guess, one important, one mentor to the next important one, and you don't keep in touch with, so you can't really fall back on the person where you haven't maintained the relationship. That, and that person feels, uh, hurt, yeah. you know, because you usually have these, these hustler types that are people after my own part, by the way, but they meet this, this, this person, it helps them get, the person helps them get to the next level. And then once they realize that they need another person, they kind of drop this person off and it becomes a sort of a ghosting slash, you know, uh, totally forget this guy and move on to the next level. And you see successful people after successful people that have done that. But what you don't see are the guys that did that, did not succeed. Yeah. And when you fell back to the previous level, person wasn't there to hold on to them and they crashed down. Right. So grow from your core and with your network, bring your mentors along with you, you know, stay in touch with them. And by the way, one, one very important networking practice, um, that is not only makes you a great human being, but it's a very important, uh, practice is gratitude phone calls, you know, where you make a list of people that you haven't spoken to for a while and say, Hey, you call them up. Hey, I love you. I miss you. You added a lot of value to my life. I know we haven't spoken, but I'm here for you if you need me. That's okay. It's, it's very important, uh, gratitude expression. It makes you a good human being and it's also very self-serving. Uh, so, so again, I like things that are both altruistic yeah. and self-serving at the same time. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just re-underlining that and also putting a little asterisk, like I should do that. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I'm, so before I forget, the, yeah. the, you know, I love the philosopher uh, Gibran, Khalil Gibran, who my mother introduced me to. He's got this great uh, uh, quote in his book. Says, you know, a, a man went to a Sufi master and said, teach me how to be successful. And the Sufi said, I'll teach you more than that. I shall teach you how to be generous to the unsuccessful. That will pave the way towards your own success and give you far more. I shall also teach you how to be generous towards the successful. Otherwise you will be liable to become bitter and unable to work towards success. It's a very important uh, quote. I'll have to put it, I have to write it out in the, in the piece. Um, I, one thing that was stuck in my mind is, um, because I've just been reading a bunch of Graham Duncan stuff and I know you two are a fan of, um, different models for thinking about people's personality types. Really? And once you understand some of that, um, you realize some people are going to be a better, a more natural match for each other. Right. And you have yeah. this idea of, I don't know what you call it, the power pair or the power, power pairs. Power pairs. So I'm curious how you think about that. I guess in investing as well as in your network, is that do you 
you know, does that influence how you connect people? And also what you look for in, I guess, you know, when you look at a company, a management team, investors, how do you, how does that all influence each other? Very much, very much. Um, I was trained in personality typing by probably the best in the world in my mind. It's a woman, her name is Antonia Dodge. Uh, very much changed my life. And uh, part of the reason why we've been good at the personality type and stuff is we understand the flaw of personality. Mm. You know, all models are wrong. Some are useful. If you understand the flaws of the model, you can actually apply it better. And, you know, the, the, uh, uh, my friend Maria, she called personality typing, you know, astrology for nerds, uh -huh. you know, which is, she, she, she wasn't being complimentary, but when he said that, if you understand the flaw and the main flaw, by the way, is that every personality typing system is portrait. So there's four personality typing systems that cover four categories. Cognitive, how you think. Affective, how you feel. Canadian, how you move. And developmental, how you develop. So if somebody says, well, Myers-Briggs is flawed. No, Myers-Briggs only covers cognitive. Right? A test like Caliper only covers cognitive. And maybe a little bit of the others. You know, so, so what you need is a test that covers all four aspects of your personality. Right? And there are not many of those tests out there. One of the ones that gets the closest to it is Enneagram, which by the way, it got taken over by the marketers, but Oscar Ichazo, a Peruvian priest that invented Enneagram, and actually developed it as a tool of spiritual development. And it's when you go to that tool, the way Bach Ichazo designed it, that it's actually the most powerful. And also personality typing systems don't think of your personality in different contexts. Yeah. The way you are in normally is different than the way you are in intimacy. My wife was shocked, for example, how I was behaving when I was around my nanny. That, um, uh, my, the woman that raised me, other than my mother, I say, mm. my nanny, she's still with us. And when I'm around her, I behave very differently, right? And then how you behave in stress. Mm. Yeah. Normal intimacy and stress behavior are very different. And in fact, Enneagram, so I'm an Enneagram 5, for example. And in stress and Enneagram, I become an eight. In intimacy, I become, I forget what the number is, but you get my point. So yeah, yeah, personality typing, once you understand that, it can be useful. But it's not useful to select individuals. Mm. It's useful to select groups. So, when, so. Well, when you say you're going to create a group with cognitive diversity, you only pick a certain type. So for example, the very prevalent dominant personality type in investing is the INTJ, mm. right? The introverted, intuitive thinking 
judger. Yeah. So let, let's explain it for, for, for the audience. Introvert or extrovert means do you get energy from other people or do you get energy from being by yourself? Intuitive uh, or sensor, intuitive, are you pattern recognizer, conceptual, or are you a sensor? Is that, is, is that how you get information or are you a sensor you get information from the five senses? Once the information comes, do you think about it first or do you feel about it? And then once you have synthesize the information can you make a fast decision are you a j or do you need more information are you a perceiver yeah my personality type for example is entj by the way the first time you see your personality type on paper the way that you know that it's actually your personality type is you're uncomfortable when you see it it exposes that part you don't want to look too close you're like oh that sounds off you're like, sure. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so it's very important. So the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that doesn't feel good. And not only that, I also wasn't self-aware enough to understand that I wasn't an INTJ. Right. Because all the guys that I admired in the investment business were INTJ. Yeah. Yeah. Right. By the way, there are personality typing uh, algorithms. So one of the things that we've done, for example, and it's fine, is taken all the speeches of Buffett, all the speeches of Soros, all the speeches of Druckenmiller, and then we put them into this personality typing algorithm and we see what comes out. And that way, when we're interviewing somebody and we can take their writing and put it in there and see who did it correspond with, just as a, again, it's not perfect, but it's pretty indicative. I, I can't believe, I think you mentioned this once to me. And now I'm realizing, wait, I can't believe I haven't taken a closer look at that and, and written about it. That's an amazing idea. Um, it's fun. It's also indicative, right? Of um, We also can't share that algorithm with you. Right. <laughs> but go ahead. No, I, I was just thinking because you said, um, for example, INTJ is prevalent among investors. I, I always try to remind myself, I, there's, there's many ways to skin the cat and make money in markets. And they're very different types. Totally. So. So, you know, from value to, you know, like even, you know, Soros and, and Buffett and, and Druckmiller is probably a good example of people who approach things very differently. And so you can succeed. You just have to figure out like the more you know about yourself, the more you can pick a strategy and approach a philosophy that works with that temperament and, and your own strengths. Otherwise, you try to emulate. And you talked about, um, you call it imitate. Imitate to, to innovate, right? It's easy to, in the beginning, try to imitate somebody when there is not even, like to imitate the wrong idea just because, oh, somebody else was successful with it. I'm going right. to do that without understanding the context and also, I guess, the personality type, right? The, um, right. the degree to which it. But this is where power pairs come in. And this is a pattern that shows up consistently in the investment business and no one ever talks about it. And what it is, is so you're an INTJ. If you're self-aware, you understand your constraints and your limitations. And the way to transcend those is actually to behave a little bit more outside your personality type, to have that sort of adaptation potential where you're able to do that. 
So me, for example, I've trained myself on how to be an introvert. It's not my happy place, but can more or less do it. And in the case of the introvert, his growth is going to come for when he puts himself in an extroverted place. So for example, one of the things I always suggest introverts to do is coach a little league team, uh, coach a younger analyst or team uh, of, of, or teach, put yourself out there. And the growth that comes from that is pretty staggering. Having said that, a power pair is actually very useful. So let's say you're an INTJ. What's your power pair? Select guys that are ENTPs. So extroverted intuitive thinking perceivers. You're an introvert, he's an extrovert. So he's going to ask you questions that are going to draw you out. You both speak the same language as the two middle words, intuitive thinking. I don't know if you've ever tried to speak to intuitive feelers or sensor feelers, but it's very, very difficult. You're almost, words have different meanings. It's a different yeah. value system. It's a different way of seeing things. It's very valuable, but this is where a lot of clashes and relationships come from, right? But what's even more powerful for the INTJ, because he's a fast decision maker, and that's one of the flaws of the INTJ and ENTJs, the perceiver slows you down. Mm. It says, hey, I know you want to do this, but have you considered X, Y, and Z? And now the INTJ can go and consider even more. That's interesting. So for me, an ENTJ, for example, my power pair is INTP. When I'm working with an INTP, this is how the magic happens. You know, especially one of my flaws is fast decision making. Yeah. I see something, let's do that. And the INTP is like, hey, can you calm down a second? Have you considered X, Y, and Z? I'm like, no, I had not. But now that I have, let's do this. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, you need these, this power pair. If you think about Buffett, when we put Buffett in the personality typing algorithm, he comes out INTJ. When you put Munger, he comes out ENTJ, but the J is really close to a P. Mm. And think about all the books and the information that we've gotten from Munger versus that we've gotten from Buffett. And one of the reasons why they do so well, I believe, of course, I could be wrong, but it's because of that, that polarity, mm. that power pair potential. I can name hedge fund after hedge fund or investment firms after investment firms where this power pair concept exists. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And I, um, I guess. It, it's interesting because I'm, I'm reminded there are some examples where you'll have people in a firm and it's and they they kind of discuss that dynamic like oh I'm the person who's like more on the I don't know more intuitive I'm I'm a little faster and then you know we have the more conservative person you know, like they'll they'll talk about the relationship without actually using these terms but they'll describe the dynamic of finding a decision at the same time I'm reminded that it's kind of rare to find true I guess you know. I don't know, co-PM, even with, with Buffett and Munger, right? It's not, it's kind of equals, but you know, Buffett's calling the shots. And like, so, so it's, um, I, I wonder how this plays out in, in real life. Cause you're often, you, you come out at the point of like, well, one person has to be in charge. And so I guess that person has to find a good partner to play off of. And that person has to be okay with, um, being, you know, second among equals. 
Yes. Yeah, pretty cool. You can't have two fingers on a trigger. Yeah. Yeah. You need one guy to finally get to the, uh, the final decision. But usually it comes within a power pair after having spoken about that decision. You know, in the investment business, you need confidants, you know, to people bounce ideas off of, especially me, by the way, as an extrovert, because one of the problems with extroverts in the investment business is uh, we need to speak about an idea to shape it out. The problem with that is when we're speaking, you know, the gibberish comes out. We haven't shaped it out yet. Yeah. The yeah. number of times when I say, well, it's this. And I'm like, wait, no, wait, now that I've heard it, no, I'm not that. Mm -hmm. And it drives the introverts crazy. Yeah. So, so you kind of need that. The other thing is the reason why this concept is powerful is uh, we find that most funds that have done well, th these power pairs happen by accident. Very few of them went and consciously said, hey, you know what? I'm an ENTJ. Let me hire a bunch of INTPs around, right. you know, or I'm an INTJ. We need the extroverts. In fact, I would say that most of the tests in the hedge fund business are de designed to crowd out the extroverts and to hire these highly introverted dorks that are people after my own heart. The problem is you're left with a monoculture. Hmm. You don't have cognitive diversity inside the, uh, inside the business. Right. Yeah. I, I want to pivot a little bit, um, from, from the networking and touch on a couple of questions that came up with me and with people I've talked to after the, uh, previous talk we've done. And, and one was, um, and you talked, I really, I still like that phrasing, um, where you said, okay, basically learning is behavioral change. Unless you get to that place of change, you're, you're not actually, you haven't actually learned. You've just ingested information and. Um, I also remember you have the saying of where you say tension is the enemy of learning, which you apply yes. in, in different ways. So I'm curious, say somebody's, you know, um, listen to, to your talk, they have all these ideas about learning, but you know, you, you're trying to implement it. Like what are some of the blockers? Where does some of this tension come from, um, that may prevent people from actually, um, having that information and implementing it in their own life and, and seeing that behavioral change. I, I think it's so easy. Somebody like me, I'm like, I'll take notes. I think I got it. And then a year later, I look back and like, wait a second, what nothing happened. I didn't, I didn't do the thing. I just listened and I felt smart. Um, but I didn't use it. Yeah. I mean, and I think we, again, I covered this in the presentation, but we think that just cramming our minds with information and repeating. Yeah. And by the way, in many ways, it's the fault of the school systems where they don't teach you how to apply it. They cram your brain with information. You know, my mentor calls it, he doesn't call it the educational system. He calls it the diseducational system. You know, you can get them really going about the, the school systems and don't get me started, by the way. And so learning how to practice something and Taking words and turning them into works is what really matters, you know, and it, this is where you get really the, the value and the primary blockage, like you mentioned, is tension. And what I would start, by the way, with is imagine you have a, a teacher and you have some emotional tension with them, especially that is negative. Are you going to listen to them? <laughs> 
you know, probably not. Contrary, it's like, why should I listen to that guy? Can't stand him. Yeah. Right. So tension, a teacher that doesn't establish rapport with the students, emotionally positive, where trust, you've got their back. You know, they know that you're going to teach them things. They respect you. You have authority. That's the enemy. You don't have that. That's the enemy of the learning. Well, let's step back again. Your body is a physical, emotional, and mental system all in one. If you have physical tension, you're not going to learn. Yeah. Man. You ever are learn something in a book and you don't really understand it. And a couple of days later, you're in the shower and the inside drops. Well, what happens? The hot water and the shower relaxes you. It dissipates tension. And that's how the insights come. Yeah. So the importance yeah. of physical health for learning is massive. Look, one of my, the saddest things to happen to me right now is some of my peers that I grew up in the business with have stopped learning. In, in what way and why? What, what do you not adapting. They no longer want to work on shorts. They no longer want to work on sectors that they don't understand. Oh, this is outside. This is not what I do. Right. Outside when the we, circle of competence. You mean. Right. When we were kids, we didn't know anything. We'd go and lock ourselves in a room and figure it out. And I was like, oh, I, I can't do that. Very sad. And when you look at these guys, one of the reasons is their physical health is not what it should be. They no longer have the energy of a younger person. They're tense. They don't eat well. They don't work out. They don't manage stress. You know, one of the, 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 the main drivers of my life currently is the few hours a day that I spend on exercise and recovery. Yeah. And you kind of need to, by the way, in our business, because of all the stress, you know, it, the, you can have the capacity to handle stress, uh, but there are definitely a lot naturally, but there's definitely a lot of things that you can do to augment that massage, acupuncture. You know, and, and all of the weird shit that you've heard me say over the years that I do, right? Yes. So, so getting rid of that tension in your body, you can never truly get rid of it, by the way. You can, you can lower it. In many ways, a certain amount of tension is positive, especially to, to propel you forward. But there are th certain, definitely certain things you can dissipate it. If you don't, you will break. You will burn out. And then the third thing is not having a network for learning. You know, if you're, if you have a, a learning partner, you can push each other forward. Again, too many guys, too many times guys sit there at their computers. Oh, I learned this, but they don't share it with anybody. They don't get feedback. Yeah. And, you know, be able to have, uh, a personal laboratory for learning, which I, I touched upon. Yes. For me, learn and applying in a small way and, and be willing to have a sort of a risk budget where I'm willing to lose a little bit to learn a lot. 
And then taking that and applying it somewhere where it's big, once you know that it works. Yeah, I, I think actually that's a really, I mean, at least for me, I guess both conversation as well as digital conversation, whether it's Twitter or writing something, as soon as you put things out there, you get a chance to have a conversation about it and learn. And you're not always right. Um, but it's much harder to figure that out if you're, if you're not putting it out there and if you're sort of stuck in a, I think the, the, I guess the worst situation would be if, if you're in a firm, right, you can't share anything and you're also just working very deeply on a very, you know, small number of ideas, right? Sort of the, the, um, opposite of the futsal concept, which you introduced later, where you sort of, um, yes, you can go deeply, but you don't have a lot of reps and it's very hard because it takes a long time to figure out whether you're right or wrong. Um, so I think in some ways, some roles today in the investment business are sort of, they're not anti-learning, but it's, but it's hard to get that feedback mechanism going if you can't, if you can't share and <laughs> yeah, cause I, I really like the futsal by the way. I, I, that's one of the, the core ideas that, that I came away with and I was actually here, you know, creating futsal situations for learning. Is very powerful. Yeah, I was wondering, how do you, because because some some of this futsal like the, the idea like the person steps into a situation that's very active, right? And just to explain it, why do you, it, it's this idea of like a smaller playing field, and you get a lot of you get a lot of reps, a lot of ball contact, and in in the metaphor, I was thinking like for Buffett, in some ways, it was being on the racetrack. And just estimating odds for horse races for short, you know, like he just mm. did that over and over again until he was really skillful at that. But how do you, how do you create that? Or how do you find it if you, if you don't have it in your life right now? Having these small businesses that Buster had, the pinball business, right? It, uh, uh, delivering papers, you know, they, yeah, some of the examples that I gave. So some of the PMs that I know, they train people using leaps. Right. You're only allowed to use leaps or, or options or puts to express an investment bet. That's it. It constrains them. But when they, they are allowed to use equities, imagine how they're able to use that different uh, structure to express a bet. Uh, another is giving analysts four hours to come up with a decision on an idea. You have four hours to figure this out, you know, and limiting that and then training the analyst to come up with a, with a process ahead of that, that he can go through in four hours that can get him to where he needs to be. So much time is wasted in the analytical community by saying to somebody, Hey, tell me by the end of the week, if this thing is good or not whole week to decide if something is good. No, you know, limiting that is actually very valuable. So again, it's, it's about. And one of the ways that I suggest is uh, creating a Google ad campaign. You know, you're trying to advertise for a service that you use a lot, design an ad for it and see which people click on what ad, you know, which is more powerful. You know, there, there's, you have to be very creative at creating these training processes. And, and, uh, we did a, a case study on the NFL and one of the main lessons was the two minute drill where you have two minutes to the end of the game, quarterback gets the ball. What are the, there's so many of these games that, that depend on these last two minutes and 
what are the strategies and tactics, conditions and structures that go through with between the coaches, the offensive coach, the defensive coach, the quarterback, his offensive weapons, and then the defensive coach of the opposite team and defensive weapons, right? Fascinating, the lessons that come from that. So it's like so, finding the game within the game, like a, just yeah. a shorter. A sh it's a shorter time period. It's constrained. Yeah. But think about how much more emotional, how much more tense, how much more pressure is in that and how much more you can learn from it. Yeah. Right. The other thing is, I don't know if I mentioned this in the presentation, I forget. But when you're learning, you want to learn from fields that have battle-tested methods, right? Intelligence, the things that they tried, when it did not work, people died. Right. So the things that they keep doing usually tend to work. Same thing in the military, same thing in sports, same thing in, in construction, for example, or architecture, hmm. right? These, the, their, their principles, their methods, their tools, they've been battle-tested. It's like so, if if like if you talk about the margin of safety, right? You're like, well, the margin of safety in engineering for a bridge. I like certain right. concepts just just hold. They're actually important. Right. I love that uh, that Buffett example of. Have you seen these Roman bridges that were built two thousand yeah. years? You know why they're like that? Because the architect architect has to sleep there with his family after. Yeah. <laughs> you get it wrong, it it, it really hurts. It's uh, your ass, right? Which, so, which is. That's really interesting, though, because it's not always true in the investment business, right? It's I think one of the issue with learning there is there is there is history um, and there are examples, but so much depends on on the context. So much depends on um, very specific circumstances. And but I I think you did some. I mean, if if it's okay to say that, I, I think you did some work, for example, in the seventies, right? And sort of trying to figure out, like, okay, what can we learn from certain time periods um, that may have, that may have, you know, some of the similar conditions that we're experiencing now. And you still have to be kind of careful um, with, with that because so many things are, are also different. But I'm curious how you went about that process and, and how you apply that, you know, what you so I was having um, breakfast with a friend of mine who runs uh, the investment arm of a very large Italian conglomerate, brilliant guy, uh, Matteo Scolari. Um, he's become a friend and a confidant recently. Very uh, fortunate to to know him. And he asked me, what does this period remind you of? And I said, it reminds me of the early 2000s. And he said, uh, it reminds me of the 70s. And considering who he knows and, and also the way he thinks, that really uh, influenced me. And I said, you know what? I need to go study the 70s because I was born in 1974. What the hell happened in the 70s? And uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Jason McDougal, who's an investment nerd like I am, him and I, because uh, we have no life, got together uh, in his office and we compiled all of the information that we could get our hands on in the 70s. Uh, mutual fund letters from back then. Uh, even some of the hedge fund letters and articles that were written on hedge funds. 
uh, political events, economic events, geopolitical events. And we replayed the 70s from 1968 to 1982. And then we kept noticing some of the patterns that kept occurring. And it took us close to 12 hours to do the whole thing. And then we wrote up the lessons. But more importantly, uh, when you study the past, the problem is, and you're trying to, to get lessons to apply to the present or the future, the conditions and structures in which the past existed often don't exist today. Right. So that's where you fall into the rhyming, repeating problem. You know, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Yeah. Or it's, as a friend of mine says, it echoes. Right. So, so that when you isolate those differences, it's actually in those differences that the real insights of what's about to happen is actually valid. Give me a couple of examples. Like what, what did sure. you so, get into? So back, back in the seventies, China GDP as a percent of global GDP was less than 5%. Today it's close to 20%. Back then globalization wasn't a thing. Right. Today it's massive and ubiquitous. Back then software did not exist really. Today it does. Back then automation did not exist. Today it does. Right? In those differences are what you need to analyze to kind of understand, hey, what's about to happen, especially if we deglobalize? What would happen if we took the global supply chain and restructured it to make it more local? What would happen to the balance sheet that sits on top of that supply chain? Wow, right? But also the other reason why you want to take that into account is our current um, Fed chair, he thinks a lot about the 70s analog. Mm -hmm. Pretty clear he, that he does not want to be Arthur Burns. He would rather be Volcker. Yeah. So what does that tell you? But again, as a key difference, global debt to GDP in the 70s was 1x. Today it's 5x. So you can imagine what's going to happen when there's an increase in cost of capital. Yes. It's not pretty. Not pretty. You know, and, and there seems to be a little bit of an ignorance of these historical analogs. And there were, but, but again, you got to be extremely careful to protect the past and project it into the present or the future because, you know, conditions have changed. Yes. That, that's how you do these, uh, these historical analogs. That's fascinating. I, I wonder, um, I talked about this with, with Dan McMurtry. Um, it's very rare, right, to find investors who succeed decade after decade, mm -hmm. right? Longevity is, is rare and, and very valuable. And part of it comes back to the burnout when we talked about, right, the tension, the, the recovery, like staying, staying healthy. But also you have to remain a learner and you have to figure out how to adapt. And you mentioned how that's Difficult, and especially as you get, I guess, older and, and knowledge that you have already accumulated stands in the way. How do you think about that, right? People who navigated um, regime change and, and long periods of, of just, I don't know, there's a decade in the world just works very differently and what works in investing and, and markets is differently. Um, presumably, those people must have 
I, I guess just been like, how do you think about the people who were able to navigate that? Were they just, were they just better at learning and discarding old models? Did they just get lucky again? What, what are the lessons from, from people who, yeah. Yeah. Go back to, they love the business and they don't want to go and do anything else. So they're like, okay, I got to learn this because otherwise, you know, I don't want to be bad at something that I learn that, that, that I'm doing. Right. So again, it's really important to love our business. You know, the second thing is you gotta be good at unlearn what you knew before. We also need some sort of this amnesia about it. And the, the, I find that, and also an amnesia about your mistakes. You know, there's a sort of uh, revisionist history that happens with great investors sometimes where that's the example of them incinerating and eviscerating capital they kind of forgot about, you know, right. <laughs> you need a little bit of that. But also, if you're not going to have that, you have to have this philosophy of mistakes that, hey, it's what we do. You know, human, we're fallible and we don't understand things perfectly. And guess what? This is what we do. It's okay. On the contrary, we need these mistakes to learn from and to move on. Right. The other thing is to be able to adapt. It's not only you that has to adapt, but it's your business. It's also your environment. Yeah. So when you find these highly frugal investors like Buffett, that frugality actually allows them to adapt better. So you've got a lot of ownership, right? You're not frugal. You have too many people. When change comes, it's much harder for you to change and adapt than it is if you're asset light, right? So one of the personal characteristics that you need is the, is the frugality. You know, we, we, these guys are so frugal that people make fun of them, right? There's that, that amazing example that both, uh, the big guys with Catherine Graham and Catherine needs a dime to make a phone call. Oh yeah. And Buffett's got a quarter. <laughs> and he's going to make change and Grand is like give me the quarter wars you know that's how frugal this guy is it's very important you know I was recently uh, at the house of a, of a very uh, powerful investor and one of my friends that was there was like can't believe this is how he lives you know because of how much money this guy has versus you know how he lives and you know, he's older and grew up in the depression, you know, has totally different values than we do today. Because again, going back, by the way, after 40 years, imagine what Buffett and Munger have seen. And from the time they're born, the time the seventies, yeah, yeah. they saw these cycles, you know, you've seen this, you know, there, I was in a room the other day and we were talking about the early 2000 analog. And this really young, wise ass that I want to strangle sometimes uh, says, hey, you know, the only guy that's actually saw the 2000 was this guy. And he pointed to him. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in this particular analyst, I realize what it was like to deal with me when I was younger. Yeah. 
you know, what I did to my mentors when they wanted to strangle me because the way I, I like, I want to go and like, you know, and I love them. But after dealing with them, I call my mentors. I'm like, whatever I did to you when I was younger, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, so, so, and he's right. You need to have seen these cycles and have seen that, hey, things changed. You know, and they're, uh, uh uh, another saying is, you know, a lot of young guys are now learning that two plus two doesn't equal 20. Yeah. You know, and that, that math of what happens when a key condition like cost of capital changes, you know, what it does to valuations, what it does to financing arrangements, what it does to supply chains, what it does to, to consumer behavior. You know, take a consumer that has a million dollar mortgage and he was paying 30 grand a year. Now it's 7%. He's paying 70 grand a year. Is that going to have an impact? You know, so, so the, the, the adaptation that you need to see these regimes first, by the way, and this is an area of study for us. There's two areas of study for us that we have. Uh, well, three writers producers and directors of movies. The second is culture, how a business culture can actually have an impact on the business, the stock price, and even competition, just super powerful, especially today, because we have a lot of tech businesses that still have growth cultures mm. that have to become profitability cultures. And guess what? It's really difficult for a CEO to do. Think about the same change as a CEO. You have to change the incentive structure of your sales team. You have to, to fire unprofitable customers. Your board of directors, the KPIs that they track so that you can have a strategic conversation with them, they change. So your supplier relationships change. So if you went from a growth culture, that uh, a growth environment that we went through, and now we have to focus on profitability culture, it's really difficult. Mm. And then the third avenue of uh, research is these regime shifts. Mm. Which we continually are able to defend from them in my phone, but we haven't yet been able to go on offense. And one of the really annoying parts is I'll share that it's a regime change with some friends of mine, and they're able better to go on offense on it than I am, which is really annoying, but we're working on it and we're getting better at it, actually. So little by little. They, they love having you in the triad in the network. Like, oh, you've been to you, including a friend of mine, like the, who's having way better performance than I am. And he just took what I, what I told him and went on an offense on it. Um, whereas we defended from it. We, so, you know, the, but I'm learning and I think we isolated a few issues, but that's for a different time. Yeah. Do you want to just quickly touch on why you would study writers, producers, people, I guess, creative and media as an investor? What, what is the... You bet. So it, one is to study creativity. But two, I believe that there's a very strong correlation between good writing and good investing and great writing and great investing. And the writing process very much resembles the investment process. And a lot of writing concepts, for example, one recent one for me is uh, subtext, where Tarantino, I was watching an interview by Tarantino, 
and he was talking about doing the subtext of the tea, of the scene. Okay. Where he says, okay, you've taken a piece of writing and you're about to fill the scene, but the way that you truly get to the value of the emotion of the scene is by asking, hey, this character, what does he want out of this interaction? And the character he's speaking with, what does he want out of this interaction? And then you as a director, what do I want out of this interaction? And then looking from the point of view of the audience and saying, what is the audience? What is the audience going to get out of this interaction? And by doing that, you're more able to get to the insight of what this film is really going, or the scene is really going to be about. Mm. So not only doing the contextual work, but to doing the subtextual work. Right. Well, in the investment business, that's a very powerful thing to do. How does a customer see this company? How does a supplier see this company? How does a competitor see this company? How does the investment business see this company? And in those mix of um, perspectives, that's how insights drops. Interesting. Right. So it's about, I guess, different perspectives or like it's a way to interpret in, I guess, in, in one case, it's a scene. In this case, it's any kind of security or like an asset or, or a specific um, situation where you're trying to figure out where is everybody's head? Yes. It's just one thing you learn. The other is, especially um, amazing directors. You know, the I have this, you know, Chris Nolan obsession, for example. I think Chris mm. is incredible. Um, the way that he's able to, by the way, uh, Nolan, prototypical INTJ. You know, the way that he's able to harness resources and direct them. It's, it's a masterclass in leadership, in my opinion. And also how he's able to fight back the institutional imperatives that exist in the investment business. Yeah. Right? Uh, because the studios, they want something that's going to make money. Whereas the creator wants something that's going to stand on its own. Yeah, and yeah. that tradition, you know, is uh, you, you, you need to know how to manage it and create something that really matters. So, you know, that, that's just, just one aspect that you're learning from that. Uh, and there's some great books, some of the books on, and not only great books, but some great YouTube. Uh, mm. uh, because well, yeah, I'm very visual. Mm. Not only do I want to read something, but it, I'll say, hey, what was that actual interview? Yeah. Tino said this, and you watched the interview. Well, and the reason why we love this NFL study that we did, for example, where, where the insights were just insane, was when you were reading something that, I don't know, Belichick was doing, you could actually go to the YouTube and get the visual clips yes. and compare and contrast what the writer is talking about, what you were seeing, and, and then what the big guy was seeing too, right? Yeah. So, so it's very valuable for learning and for pattern recognition and also from taking lessons from other fields and applying it to, to, to investing. I appreciate that. I always, I, and I'm going to see if I can find a few links to, uh, to put into the, uh, into the piece on this, but. Well, yeah. go to your outstanding screenplays okay. or 
uh, I'll send you a link mm -hmm. of um, of these YouTube channels where it's you you look it, especially for writing because you you have to know how to write not only to create content and to leverage the intellectual component of your work that way you shared that and it accomplishes goals for you but for the investment business the number of times where somebody will show you a memo yeah a memo in three pages is the reason why you're about to make 10 times your money yeah. you know it's a very important way to 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 uh, uh to do research and you, you have to read this stuff um, I love how you, I, this is something I, I appreciate about you and also, I guess, just in general, the, the ability to draw, to, to connect different domains and draw on these lessons from way outside the world of investing and bring it back um, in a very practical sense, right? Like, what do I study? Okay, I incorporate this into the writing and the research process, but also metaphorically, oh, the tension between the business and the craft is the same right. in filmmaking as it is in investing and in other domains. I always uh, right. By the way, that's uh, my mentors. You know, I learned that directly from Michael Mobison, you know, who believed in this concept of consilience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, so, so it's, it's uh, again, I learned that from him, and, but I've really taken it to, to, to heart. And also, I, I enjoy it, but, but look, you know, to tie it all together, uh, when we did the NFL study, we actually took some of the insights, designed questions around them, and then started calling people in the NFL. Okay. From coaches to team owners to players even. Uh, some of the fun conversations were with the agents. Uh, uh, that was really interesting. And you guys couldn't believe it. So it's, yeah. it's, Calling, it's like, yeah, well, you know, we want to learn. And the insights we got were mess. You know, and the people we met are, uh, are really cool. It's a different kind of field work from going into a mall. That's right. That's right. And, 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 and some of my favorite strategic relationships now have actually come from that study. So we're going to do the same thing. I was with a friend um, on Zoom last weekend. And we were talking about it. And he said, Hey, you're working on this. I know this one screenwriter, and the screenwriter happens to be one of my favorite screenwriters. You know, so that's also how you jack up serendipity. Josh Wolf has this great saying of, of harnessing randomness and optionality. Yes. And share your work is how you do that. You know, Reed Hoffman, he has a great saying share your work early, share it often. That's how you get stuff to come back to you. Yeah. So all the way back to network building. I appreciate it. Listen, I, I appreciate that you uh, took the time. I thought this was, I, I have tons of notes. I think there's so much good stuff in here. So I'm very, really excited actually to share it. As you said, share early, share often. I've got a lot to learn and implement in terms of behavioral change myself. We all like do. This not. was incredible. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that. We all do. And thank you. Thank you.